think that's excellence. It's understanding that bad things will happen despite all of your preparation and being ready to make success likely to happen, right? So maybe a better way of saying that is excellence is robust to setback and failure, resilient to setback and failure, right? You can find your path forward through everything. Welcome back to the World Extreme Medicine podcast with myself, Ben Walker. In this episode, we're going to look at the concept of X to excellence with Dan Dworkis. So what I wanted to do is really dig into the challenge of defining excellence within emergencies and looking at the, the concept also that excellence is more than just the absence of bad attributes and is more the relationship between safety and excellence. So we're going to explore individual and team-based evolution in crisis and finally the challenge of building excellence within swarm teams. So to do this, I have Dan Dworkis with me. Dan is the founder of the Mind Project. He's also the Chief Medical Officer at Mission Critical Team Institute. He's also a board-certified emergency physician and an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Keck School of Medicine of USC. So he performed his emergency medicine residency at Harvard Medical School and indeed at the Harvard-affiliated uh, emergency medicine residency at Massachusetts General Hospital. So he holds an MD and a PhD in molecular medicine from Boston University School of Medicine. And if that wasn't enough, he's also the author of The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. Welcome, Dan, to the podcast. Thank you, Owen. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a terribly uh, awkward hearing somebody read a bio that you wrote about yourself back to you and he says all the weird things he said in it differently but i was on a podcast recently and i uh I, you know we have the little name here in the bottom i don't know if it'll show up for the folks watching this at home but i had managed to spell my own name incorrectly on that one so i am like so far so good things are looking up dan i just wondered if we could stop just looking at um what the Immensely Mind Project seeks to do um, from just just from uh, sort of the USP uh, from from your perspective, absolutely. So so we exist as an organization to figure out the best of what humans know, applying knowledge under pressure, right? And we do that at the individual team and sort of system or organizational level. And I, I think it I think it makes it more sense to sort of like tell a story about this because that's like the dry version, but the story is really where the meat is, right? And the story is like what it feels like the first time you walk into a really serious chaotic event, like a, a crazy resuscitation or the first cardiac arrest you're part of or a trauma or something. And and if you've been in one of the sessions, I just want you for a second to throw yourself back in time and like really embody that space again and think about what that felt like. And, you know, if you're anything like me, um, it didn't feel good right? It didn't, it didn't feel great. I wasn't this superhero. I didn't know how to do things automatically. And I was like, in fact, far from it. I was like pretty shaken up. And, you know, I, I kind of muddled my way through it a little bit. And, and I walked out of that room being like, what the hell was that? Right? Like, I trained my entire life up to be an emergency doctor. And what, you know, what happened was not some weird superhero, you know, move of power where everything came together. It was, it was kind of chaos. And there was this big disconnect. I had this stuff up in my head, but I couldn't figure out how to get it into the person. There was a gap there. 
so I, you know, I came back from that moment. I started talking to people. I asked around. I looked at more senior doctors. I looked at more junior doctors. I looked at people outside of medicine. I thought about my own training in the martial arts where I'd been called upon to do things over and over again and tried to really get to this question of like, well, what does it mean to apply knowledge under pressure, right? How do you get what's in your head out into your hands and out into the patient? And if you're doing any sort of medical care, I know this is a thing that you've thought of before, right? How do I get this theory from all of space into my hands, into the patient, where and when the patient needs it? And well, okay, like punchline, not an easy problem, right? But there's a lot that we understand about how to do it. And this became for me, um, I'll go ahead and call it a session, like figuring out how to apply knowledge under pressure and trying to figure out what the best that humanity has to offer in terms of how that works. And it turns out there's some super fascinating problems about there, right? Problems about how to manage yourself as a human under pressure, problems about how teams coalesce and succeed or fail under pressure. And then like what's really fascinating is sort of the broader scale aspect of it is what, what does it take to build an organization or a system where the application of knowledge successfully under pressure is an emergent property. It's the natural state. It's the default that things work the way they're supposed to. And there are just some awesome questions in there. So what we do with the Emergency Mind Project is, is study that, work with teams that are working under pressure, work with organizations that want to get better, uh, and try to push the, push the edge of knowledge forward about that. Listen, that sounds fantastic. It sounds uh, very much like you said, bringing me back to the formative years of, of, of being a flight mm -hmm. paramedic and a critical care paramedic and, and like you say, being very unifocal, l missing lots, uh, not really understanding versus signal and how to differentiate the signal i.e. the next next salient priority in the scene mm -hmm. um, and then like you said building that up to the corporate level but but I, I think one of the skills you mentioned there uh, Dan is it's really around being able to is individually understand the sequence of events um, and then commit that to the subconscious memory. Therefore, you can start to gain a semblance of a, a wider bandwidth, a wider corporate understanding of, of, of where the scene needs to be filled, the pinch points, the leverage points, the delegated points but it, it's it starts from this very much unifocal to a very focal perspective where you start to open up your consciousness and open up your attention um so in that foray because that's you brought me through that quite nicely and and it very much has been my journey but, but could you could you speak to this 500 second principle that you, that you speak of within the mission critical institute Sure. So I, there's one thing I think we got to hit before that, and then we'll come back to this idea of 500 seconds, because 500 seconds is sort of the, the environment, the milieu that we do this in. But, but I think that it's worth calling out from sort of a theoretical point of view, what you're describing about making things unconscious in sort of large quotes uh, is really part of the application of what is like cognitive load theory. Right, which is a study of in one in one way or another how the human brain makes decisions with a uh, relatively set bandwidth, which is to say that there's often a supply demand mismatch problem between the mental resources we need to solve a problem set and the mental resources we have to bear to solve a problem set. Some of us have you know 
decreased supply compared to other people, right? Especially as things are changing and you get older and everything else, uh, you have to make do with what you have. Um, and you have to keep pushing that and expanding your, your ability to do it. But, but ultimately all humans, like all brains, all human brains have some limits imposed on them. Um, fascinatingly, some of this limit turns out to be around like heat, like the amount of energy and heat we generate when we think about stuff. So anyway, that's a fun sidebar, but, um, but it's worth for a second talking about cognitive load theory, right? So cognitive load theory is the idea, uh, rough speaking that, that the amount of energy, um, the amount of load you're under when you're making a decision is made up of essentially three parts, right? So there's intrinsic cognitive load, which is the mental energy it takes to do a task, extraneous cognitive load, which is the mental energy of stuff all around you that's not actually related to the task, and then germane cognitive load, which is the mental energy you're putting into understanding how to do the task better and storing up for sort of the next run through. So we can think about you know a, a critical emergency or paramedic skill here, which is like intubating. Right, this is sort of a good model for this. So the intrinsic cognitive load is you actually figuring out the dynamics of putting a blade in the mouth and putting the tube in, right? The extraneous cognitive load might be noise around you or screaming or the whir of a helicopter blade or, you know, another sort of set of people demanding tasks for you. Hey, can you read this EKG? Can the patient room 10 like have a sandwich? You know, like all this other stuff that goes on. And then the germane part of the cognitive load is you actually designating part of your brain space, your brain's energy at any one point in time to watching what you're doing and being like, how could I do this better? Am I doing this right? Is this happening? Right? It's the consolidation of, of skill into uh, an understanding of knowledge. And I think the word for that is schema is what you're building with that. I'm not sure if that's the right technical word for that or not. Um, but yes, certainly part of our ability to perform under pressure is managing our finite bandwidth and our cognitive load. And you get into all sorts of stuff about that, right? Like how do you decrease the intrinsic load it takes to do a task? And maybe this is things like setting up your kit in a better way so it's more logical which piece of gear to get when, right? How do you decrease extraneous cognitive load? Can you control the room? Can you control the temperature and the sound of the room? Can you change your environment to, to decrease and shed cognitive load from that perspective? And then the germane cognitive load, can you put the reps in ahead of time? Can you train yourself so that what is hard and challenging and so costly becomes easier because you've essentially built those schema and or whatever the word is for that, and you're able to actually do the task that you're doing, right? So that's sort of like the backdrop of a lot of how the mind works in terms of like finite bandwidth smashed against an infinite problem set, right? Is this cognitive load sort of an idea? So then we get into the universe in which you have to deploy this bandwidth. And, and that's where you have come up with this sort of like 500 seconds or less idea. Um, this is something that came up from my friend and colleague, Preston Klein, who is the co-founder and um, director of education for the Mission Critical Team Institute. Uh, and he picked 500 seconds as the window within which mission critical teams make decisions. Right. And he picked that because essentially that's the that's sort of roughly the amount of oxygen you have floating around, like at 500 seconds, like bad things start happening to you. Um, so if you can think about that as the window, like if, you know, you give somebody a paralytic and they stop breathing about 500 seconds, bad things start happening. Now, of course, like if you're listening to this, you're probably like nobody has 500 seconds of, of actual oxygen in them. And that's because most of us are operating in universes where, um, let's shall we say, conditions are suboptimal in one way or another right? Because you're doing it on a mountain at super high altitude, or because the person is really sick, or because they were recently on fire, or, you know, something, right? 500 seconds is the nice number that happens in an operating room when you have totally controlled conditions and an anesthetist who gets to take their time and sort of slow, slow the whole process. 
most of us operate in universes that are actually uh, like some of these life or death decisions we're making are actually a lot less than 500 seconds. But 500 seconds is a fun number to work with. You said a lot there, actually. And one of the things that really strikes me is um, learning in that in that 500 seconds to ha- what what mitigation strategies, because as you said, a true practitioner of of a high performance in a um, dynamic and unpredictable environment is is knowing where the leverage points and the mitigation points are. So how can I mitigate extraneous noise? How can I, like you said, the intrinsic uh, load, the extrinsic load, it's, and, and the simple things uh, first, right? So is the ambulance pointing the right way for, for good um, ex- expediting patient transfer? But again, is everyone briefed? Have we mitigated noise? Do, have we have we done have we shared the mental model from what we've just found but, but but more so as well is you know simple things like facilitating the assessment of the patient pulling them to 360 access if they've been shot in an alleyway and they're crawling up the wall or lying next to the wall dragging them out just so you can get good 360 access and the simple things which gain leverage to 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 another segue to good decision making but you you said a lot in there and and a lot of that is right great they've already got 360 access they've already got the coast cut so they're trauma naked they've they've already got a chest seal on they've got oxygen on right and then right so what we not got all internal so you in check you check listening internally but then you're verbalizing externally to make sure everyone knows the pinch points and, and what, what what the leverage points are and and so my question on the back end of that Dan would be where do you see excellence residing on scene in in a in a high performance team in the pre-hospital arena what what, what facets do you see being um models in 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 such an event so there's there's so much in in what you just said because i think there's a lot of stuff that um feels obvious to you as you're saying that that's extraordinarily not obvious right the idea that you can modify your environment and the situation to set yourself up for success uh, it is actually something that goes away pretty quickly when we're under pressure, right? Like if you've ever run one of these scenarios or done this in real life, you realize how easy it is to get hyper-focused on just solving this one piece and not realize, actually, like I can change the entire game by moving everything 90 degrees. You know, I can actually put the patient up on a bed or change the whole direction of everything or like have the team around me feed me other gear, right? Um, so I used to do this this drill with some of my junior physicians about setting up a transtracheal jet ventilator uh, off of a needle, um, which is a a backup of a backup of backup technique for something, you know, Uh, and I would make them do it with one hand because once they put the needle in, right, they can't move that hand or they lose the access. And I would say only about maybe like one in 40 or one in 50 of them would turn to the person next to them and be like, open this for me. Everybody else would try to solve it on their own. Right. I never said they had to do it on their own. I was actually curious if any of them would realize like you can ask for help, but only about like one in 40 or 50 would do it. Everybody else was just so task fixated on this. Right. But we lose sight of the things around us in there. And this is going to circle back to excellence, I think, in a really important way. Um, But I am so fascinated by teams where everybody on the team has the common ethos that we are going to make the situation better at all times. Right, that they're all constantly working to make every position better. 
right? In jujitsu, you have this idea of position before submission, right? You have to make the universe slightly more favorable for you before you go for the big move. So I'm fascinated by teams that do that well, because to me, that implies a shared mental model of what correct looks like, a shared understanding of what the possibilities of the future are, and a shared understanding of which of those possibilities, which of those future worlds we want to live in, right? So if you're thinking about intubating, if you're in there and you're thinking about the airway and your teammates around you are like, okay, great. Owen's got airway. Awesome. Well, while Owen's thinking about airway, I'm going to go ahead and like cut the person's clothes off and get IV access established and sort of, you know, rotate the patient around in a way that's more like sustainable. And I'm going to watch Owen's back to make sure he's okay as he's doing this airway. Wow. I mean, that is gold, right? That's gold. And you and I were talking before we turn on the recording thing here about like uh, essentially drilling as a training technique, right? Drilling and drilling in a way that maybe doesn't make exact parallel sense, right? That it's sort of a far transfer as opposed to a near transfer. Like how much does marching in a square, for example, really influence your team's ability to you know, deliver high quality pre-hospital care to a down, a down person? And I think that there's a link in there somewhere, which is that the more you internalize and understand that it's your job to make it better, that no one's coming, it's up to you, right? The more you internalize that, the more you get that discipline, which probably starts with drills and all sorts of other things. And the more you absorb that as your identity, I am someone who makes the room better, right? No matter what my assigned job is, I make the room better, right? You, you give me a team of those people, those people are going to make magic happen, right? And that is part, I think, of what excellence is, right? It's having a team where success is the likely outcome, or at least the more likely outcome, in part because of all of the things they do off the X to prepare them to perform on the X. Um, this is a really sort of small example of this, but uh, I'll often have medical students shadowing, uh, you know, in the ER. And in some of the areas, the acuity the seriousness of the condition is so much so that they're not actually really participating a lot in care. They're more of observing and watching, um, but they're in the room, you know, they're helping sort of undress the patient. They're getting warm blankets. They're doing, they're doing the stuff that it needs to do to make it happen. And one of the things that I always ask them to do is to clean the space while they're doing it. Right. So the nurse opens an IV kit. The nurse puts an IV kit in. We're on to the next thing. I'm watching for them to take that empty IV kit, take it off the field and throw it away. Right. And I'm watching for the one that does that without being asked, because that person understands a clean field minimizes distractions. Minimizing distractions decreases extraneous cognitive load. Decreased extraneous cognitive load makes the operator more likely to succeed at the operation. Right. So, like, does it matter in some sense that? we throw the thing away right then? No, you can put it on the floor. I don't care where you put it, right? You just have to understand. You have to have the vision of the space and realize it's my job to make the space better all the time. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely does. And, and it's the leverage of the 1% and, and, and like you said, the aggregation mm -hmm. of the 1% uh, over time. And uh, I, I'm the same, actually. What I like is a, a good clear field, good kit husbandry. Actually, like you say, formulate kit uh, around the patient so that actually you know and everyone else knows where the kit's going to be. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, to, to your point around sort of early, early sharing the mental model. But also... Um, looking at the leverage points of 
where the sequence of operation is going mm-hmm. in for future commands. So guys, in five minutes, we'd love to love to be here or in 10 totally. minutes, we'd love to be. And even if you're not there, it's the explicit stating where you'd like to be so that there's, there's no guessing. And, and, and it's bringing those decision points forward as well so that everyone knows what you're thinking but also what, what, what bringing a decision point in so that actually people can get onto the same page and they can, they can appreciate the 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 shared model you can declare the emergency early if it if it is indeed an emergency situation Absolutely. i guess i guess on the back of that dan looking at a culture of excellence across teams so something you know we're saying right now is just the archetypal how do we deploy excellence on scene here now within this patient looking at meta sort of excellence and how we we bring excellence into culture what's that what's that look like for you yeah that's that's a that's an easy question right now that's actually super complicated i think right i think there's a lot of facets in that that are that are worth digging into um i can poke at some angles of it right i think it's a thing i'm trying to figure out and a thing that i'm working with a lot of teams across different universes to try to figure out and i would say i am more on the side of the table that is asking this question than the side of the table that thinks they have an answer to it. Because I think that defining excellence and a culture of excellence within a space that has to perform in emergency conditions is really challenging, right? We're not, we're not the Olympics where, you know, excellence is I ran X distance in Y seconds and that's faster than the next person, right? That's a fairly, you know, like that is excellence also, right? I think we're in a much more sort of complicated arena when we try to figure that out. Um, I think that, uh, so here are some unconnected thoughts about excellence that, I don't know, maybe at the end I'll stir this into some uh, fascinating, uh, you know, um, uh, thread across all these, and maybe not, we'll see. Um, so I think that um Excellence is a mix of what you're able to accomplish at a moment and what the theoretical edge of that is, right? So um, there's excellence, which is what could a team with all sophisticated resources and all the time in the world accomplish, right? What is the theoretical edge of what we could do as as humans? Because right? we got to remember in medicine, like, you know, we are the sum total of all of our ancestors who have decided to be in medicine back to, you know, back to the earliest, you know, cave people. Uh, and we're doing the best we can, right? But we're not perfect. So, but what's the edge of what we could do? What could a team with everything do? And then an equally valid question is what can my team do right here with what we have, right? So it's easy to get caught up and say, well, we're not excellent because we don't have the same resources as the team down the street does, right? But I think that's a little self-defeating and a little bit not the right question. So the edge of what we can do right here and then also what's the edge that humanity could do um i think that uh excellence has a little bit to do with what we talked about about making success more likely to happen right because we know in medicine we don't control the outcome all the time sometimes a patient's die is cast and it's 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 their day to depart the earth for whatever reason Right. So one of the things I always work on with my teams is the performance outcome matrix. Right. Imagine the two by two square. Right. So you either have good performance, bad performance, and then good outcome, bad outcome. One's the columns, one's the rows. Outcome is what happens to the patient. Do they live or die? 
right? Performance is how did you do over the factors that you had under your control, taking a real, you know, we're going to smash together stoic philosophy and medicine here, right? What are the things over which you have control? Did you do them to the best of your ability? So I think a focus on performance is really crucial like that, not necessarily related to outcome, but at the same time, so excellence focuses on performance, but also excellence makes good outcomes more likely to happen, right? Cultures that are excellent make those things more likely to happen. They're the emergent properties of a culture of excellence. Um, part of that is something we talked about where each person is able to understand how uh, the vision of the future and is able to nudge the future towards the vision they want to be building of it. It's little things like, you know, cleaning up after yourself, getting the kit ready for the next person who comes in, having the discipline to do it, even though it doesn't quite make sense, maybe in that exact second, because you know, over time, it's going to add up to this accumulation of marginal gains. Um, it's also a, a flip side of that a little bit. And I hope we get into this is avoiding mistakes, right? Because I don't think that excellence is just the lack of bad things. I think it's more than that. In fact, I'll say that positively because I think it's worth saying again, excellence is more than just the lack of bad things, right? But avoiding bad things is part of it, right? It's table stakes almost. So we had this kit uh, um, at MassGen when I was training, which was an A-line kit. And the, you know, you're doing it radially, you're doing a radial A-line, uh, selling your technique. And um, the kit comes with four towels, four sterile towels, and you would make a sterile field. And you'd watch as the junior doctors would put the four towels into a square around the, the space and the, the arm where you're doing this. And then you'd watch the senior doctors and they would take three towels in a triangle, one towel behind just in case. Right. I think that's excellence. It's understanding that bad things will happen despite all of your preparation and being ready to make success likely to happen. Right. So maybe a better way of saying that is excellence is robust to setback and failure resilient to setback and failure, right? You can find your path forward through everything. Um, I, I just want to say one more, this whole like excellence is more than just the lack of bad things idea. Uh, and there's a, a metaphor here that's really always helped me. Uh, and it comes from Martin Seligman, who is the, the father of positive psychology. Um, and I read it first in his book, Flourish, which is super interesting uh, and definitely worth reading. So Seligman says, um, if you have, paraphrasing, if you have a, a patch of ground that's really dirty, like a junkyard, it's got a bunch of stuff on it, it's got a bunch of debris, and you look at that and you say, you know what I really want to do? I want to make a, I want to grow a rose bush right there. It's beautiful. It smells good. It's going to add to the environment, you know, whatever it is. And you start by taking all of the junk away, right? You take the trash away, you prepare the ground, you get it ready, but that doesn't make it grow, right? To grow a rose bush, you also have to plant a rose seed and then water it. Right? It's not enough to remove the negative pieces. You have to actively achieve the positive pieces of it to grow a rose bush. I think that same relationship exists between excellence and safety. I think safety is part of, but not all of excellence. The lack of bad things doesn't make us excellent. It just makes us good. Um, there's a bunch more and I could wander on with more ideas about the, the cornerstones of excellence. My hope is that over the net, over like people listening to this and like all of the different conversations we're having about excellence through all of this, we can we can gather enough points of view to make some sort of a robust theory of excellence, right? About like, what are we looking for? Um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe that'll be the second book. I'm not sure. No, listen, I, there's a lot to say in that. And there's a lot that resonates with me actually, Dan. And one of the things that, y you know, you were notioning towards is, you know, and one thing I 
fundamentally believe in is 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 having safe practice so despite uh, extraneous circumstances despite the dynamic scene despite the trajectory of the patient are you demonstrably safe consistently safe as a team and as an individual and we used to say you know the the worst and the worst paramedic on the worst day with the worst patient can still come to a predefined outcome and actually it's you know it, excellence uh, wasn't defined as you know lots of flashy procedures lots of uh, impressive acronyms or words or indeed um how quickly you could get something done it was consistently demonstrably safe practice irrespective of the the flash team dynamics or the swarm team dynamic irrespective of the of the environment can you demonstrate this 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 safe and effective and you look at f1 drivers right and and f1 teams you know are they can can you demonstrably safely change a tire fill the car can you know and and, and is it, it is is that consistent over time and and then another thing which which twigged when you were speaking actually is the relationship with failure because the best f1 drivers can leave the last corner behind them and actually it's 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 about being able to draw a line in the sand if because failure is around the corner for everyone and actually how what's what's and part of my job is to test other people's and my own relationship with failure can i move through my failure so it doesn't become a forwardly compounding issue which then affects my future performance and so I, I, I think I think that relationship with failure and that consistency of safe practice, irrespective of extraneous circumstances, are two key facets which I've kind of weeded out of my own my own practice. Yeah, um, I love that. Yeah. I think that especially that idea about like consistency and performance over time is a really strong one, right? Like, so you're not just good under optimal conditions; you're good under a variety of times and spaces. Right. You're good in a way when things don't go your way, whether that's because of failure or structure or whatever. And you're good consistently again over time. I think, I think there's one more I want to add into that. And I was inspired by your idea of thinking about F1 drivers, right? Which is that it's not just excellence in this moment. Excellence, excellent teams set themselves up to succeed the next time around, right? So no matter what happens in this particular go around, they're also training themselves and their team for the next time. They're learning lessons. They're studying how they could do it better. They're not, um, I don't know, satisfied is a weird word. They're not, it's not that they're not satisfied. It's that they believe that part of their mission is to be better tomorrow than they are today. I, I fully believe that is part of excellence. That's really interesting you say that actually, because I was, my next question was going to be around sort of cyclical learning actually and how, because to your point, you know, a lot, a lot of life and a lot of clinical practice is, 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 is spiral. So, you know, it might be, it's the same RSI, it's the same maybe emergency intubation procedure in a very different set of circumstances, but there's this, this, the cyclical learning. And actually how my question is, is, is around how we elevate that cyclical learning. So it is more of a spiral. So you're not in the same. So it's not cyclical. You're not back in the same place. You're in an elevated position of of learning and, and of reflection. Maybe through case review. Maybe, but maybe through high fidelity simulation. Maybe through actual practice um, and debriefing actual practice. What does that? What, what, I do, and does any of that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. So, so at the Emergency Mind Project, we use this framework, the Prepare, Perform, Recover, Evolve framework, right? And and it's this circle, but like you said, it's actually a cycle, right? There's a directionality to it. And 
the idea came from the fact that most of us, when we're learning how to apply knowledge under pressure, when we're learning how to perform, um, we hyper-focus on the moment in time that we're actually trying to accomplish a task, right? So whether this is intubating or, you know, landing a helicopter or whatever it is, we're hyper-focused on the one moment when we do it. We understand we might need to get better in that moment, but we kind of tunnel vision into that one moment in time, like we often tunnel vision in space when we're under pressure. However, the best teams across all domains are thinking more broadly than that, right? They understand what you did the day before matters on your ability to perform that day, right? Um, Kristen Holmes, the VP of performance for WHOOP and uh, former USA field hockey coach, says it really elegantly when she's like, what you do on your off days matters for what you can do on your on days. I think that's incredibly important, right? There's also the idea of recovery, what happens after you perform and how you recover from a complex event drastically influences how you're able to do the next one, whether that is moments or days or years or whatever your time frame is in there. And we can talk about the fractal nature of this, which I think is a really cool aspect of this model. Um, but how you come down, how you set yourself up to go back to normal, whatever normal is for you, is crucially important. Right. And so my, my favorite quote about that piece comes uh, from Eric Antonsen, who's an ER doctor slash um, astrophysicist, right, uh, who works on uh, in various things in and around NASA. And the way is that the human system can require maintenance and repair like every other system of the spacecraft. I'm paraphrasing him slightly. Sorry, Eric, if you're listening to this. But uh, the human system requires maintenance and repair. And that's amazing because I don't know about you, Owen, but that's wildly different than how I was taught, right? I was taught absorb risk and stress until you either break or somehow magically have gotten through it. And like, like how the hell does that work, right? But if instead you take this idea that, well, actually recovery is super important, right? And we see it in sports. No, you know, nobody would ever expect an athlete to not recover, right? But we expect providers of medical care to just sort of like exactly elastically snap back to how they were before they did this thing. And then the last piece of this puzzle, right? So we've done prepare, form, we've done recover. And then the last piece, which gets to your question, is the idea of evolution, right? How do we evolve? How do we learn lessons from what we just did and make ourselves better tomorrow than we are today? And there's sort of two twin commitments that fit into that, right? So one is I commit to being better tomorrow than I am today. And I know that's part of my job. And the sister commitment of that is that I commit to never waste suffering. My patient suffering, my suffering, my team's suffering. I cannot promise that I will save everybody, but I will promise the, that I will not waste their suffering, right? It's fuel. So if you really believe that, if you deeply, deeply, deeply believe that, then it opens up a lot of possibilities about how to train in these things, right? If part of your job is being better tomorrow than you are today, okay, well, so how do you get after it, right? And so that, that was a that was like a huge theoretical level. So you asked for some specifics. So, okay, let's, let's drill a little bit here, right? I think there's a couple of ways that really work well for this. So, so one idea comes from uh, a gentleman, Ryan Anderson, who's a former um, uh, EOD, uh, Explosive Ordnance. I never remember what the D is. Device? Uh, the, the removal, Remo destruction. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll go with that. It, it, bomb squad. Sorry, Ryan. Like butchering everybody's like life stories on this podcast. I'm genuinely sorry. <laughs> Just forgive me. Um, it's all in a good cause. Uh, but... Um, he was talking about how one of the subgroups in the bomb squad community does it, which is that when they are cycling out to go dis 
disarm or dispose of, maybe that's what the idea is, dispose of devices, right? Uh, they immediately after that cycle back to the training house and build SIM cases based on what they just saw, right? So they have a formal time frame where they get ready to go out, they're training at the schoolhouse, they go out, they come back, uh, and then they build cases based on what they saw, right? And you could imagine how that might look in medicine, right? So, okay, you're going out, and at the end of your shift, they're like, what's the most interesting thing you learned? What would you like to do next? Like, what, what do you need to get better at, right? And you just sort of like throw a couple thoughts out there, and then maybe that's the sim you get next week, right? Because it doesn't have to be this formal thing where you're going to go back and train people. It can be as simple as at the end of every sign out, at the end of every shift, like when you're taking over, asking your teammate that's off going, hey, what surprised you? What'd you learn? What, what was the thing that really sticks with you about like what just happened there? Like, how can I get better based on your learning so that I don't waste your suffering of it? And sometimes that's a question. Sometimes that's an idea like, oh man, I, you know, I really had this complicated case. What would you do, right? Um, another thing that we do in line in, in the process of everything that doesn't require you to cycle off to a training facility is taking a ton of use of lateral thinking and lateral training, right? So what do I mean by that? You and I are running a case together. Um, and let's say it's a, you know, uh, really complicated gentleman with CHF who's in flash pulmonary uh, and uh, we're putting BiPAP on him and we're working him and, you know, we're working problem set and it's, okay, we're at a place of meta stability. We have access, we have stuff going on. Um, you know, uh, if we're, if we have this um, commitment to each other that, that you and I are going to get better, right, we're going to continue to evolve, then uh, we might look at each other and be like, okay, time to play the game. All right, all right, okay. So, you know, Owen, how, what would you do if this guy went into VTAC right now? All right, well, Dan, okay, let's talk about it, right? And you sort of like game it out. You're like, well, Dan, what would you do if this person couldn't fit in the helicopter? Mm, all right, geez, okay, okay, let me, let me sort of like explain for it. Um, you can also do this. This works really well if you happen to have an extra person uh, who's watching from the outside. That person can challenge back people who are on the inside of the case, um, or they can bring in a learner from the other side and be like, I want you to see what you're doing on there. You see that, what they just did? Why did they do that? Why is that important? Right? And you can use those sort of lateral movements and those external observership movements to really get a sense of evolution off of every case like this. And that's fantastic, Dan, because like you said, what you're starting to do is you're starting to presuppose worst case and indeed best case scenario. So, but, but also, you know, prospective treatment plans according to that. So demystifying worst case scenarios is, is a fantastic mental model to be like, right, actually, the trajectory is as such um for the next case or the next case but we've already we've already been there and you know i would always value that early morning chat with the with the doctor uh, as a as a flight uh, paramedic right okay if we have a really difficult anesthetic you know what's your go-to blade what's your backup blade what's your um, threshold for I don't know front of neck access but what what would you like you know what does your 30 second drills look like and just but talking through some of these preferences and also some of these worst case scenarios just though even if you know you've just level set the 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 expectation and indeed some of the some of the outcomes or potential outcomes but dan i'd just like to explore this concept just as we start to come into land on the conversation i mean we could talk about this all day actually but just this concept of a faithful followership because i've transitioned to a different service myself i'm very much more come from a leadership back into a followership role because 
like you know before you become a leader in a certain institution you have to be a good follower and and actually it's a certain set of skills to be a a, a faithful follower that, and then to be a leader but I, I i firmly believe and it'd be interesting to get your perspective on this and how you know a good a, a high performing team works on well-oiled, well, well-trained, faithful followers with clear leadership, overt leadership, and overt followership as well. But could you could you speak to your perspective on that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. And by the way, did everybody know he framed what's going to happen in a couple of minutes here, just like he just talked about, right? Like like practice and action here. You know, in a few minutes we'll be landing the plane. Um, so uh, I think that I think there's a lot of pieces in there. So. Trying to think about where I want to take this. Well, let's go back to what we talked about at the beginning, right? The idea that uh, for exceptional teams, for teams that are displaying excellence, everybody understands the mental model of what's happening, right? And you're nudging the space forward. So one thing that a more junior member of the team who's not the leader of the team can always be doing is asking themselves in a free moment, how can I make this situation better for the team? right? What's the thing I could do here to make my team 1% more likely to succeed in a few minutes? Maybe that is something which is on the surface, not glamorous, like cleaning, right? Or doing whatever it is, but you're going to go out there and you're going to do it because you fundamentally believe that the team is the thing that's going to succeed or fail, right? Um, an interesting version of that or, or sort of parallel to that is uh, if you have a free moment and you're not directly heads down operating, right, is really observing the people that are leading and asking yourself what you would do in their position, right? So I think uh, in the, the FIRE universe, they call it um, uh, it's either riding up or riding forward, right? It's where the lieutenant sort of um, uh, temporarily gets field promoted to captain to sort of act like a captain in a squad. The captain acts like, you know, a, a chief, like everybody sort of moves forward. Um, in medicine, everybody kicks over in the academic world in July, right? So in June, we have people sort of play up and play forward with it. Uh, so sometimes it's formal like that. But even without that, I'm always asking my junior people on my team, what would you do if this other person wasn't here? Right. You can imagine, well, what would I do if I had to take over the lead of this? What would I do about this? Right. And if you create a mental model of, all right, well, let's see, Owen's in charge. I'm not in charge. I'm watching him. Do, oh, why did he like, hmm, he just did something I'm really used by. I don't think I understood it. Right. If it's a safety issue, that's one thing you can talk in the moment about it. But if it's not a safety issue, super just like amazing to come up after the fact, not during the fact. Right. Can't stress that enough. Not during the fact. Come up to Owen afterwards and be like, Owen, hey, man. Can I run this by you? When we were right here in this position, I thought you were going to do this and you did this. Can, can you help me understand what that looked like from your point of view? Right. And the good teams just like harvest exponential results because of that. Right. Because they're able to transport each other into different operations, to different mindsets, to different vantage points and to sort of see, hey, like, how can we be doing this better? What would it look like if I'm in charge? Then you get this whole database of mental models of how different leaders do it. and You're able to really push yourself forward to it. Um, fundamental that I think is like followers, like like junior people, like we talked about, you know, making the universe better, asking questions, but being curious, being outrageously curious about what's happening, not just in your own line, but lateral to you. Oh, what is this? You know, I'm not the respiratory therapist, but I'm watching the respiratory therapist do things. Well, uh, what is that? Why is that happening? Right. That's like always available to you. 
Listen, that's fantastic. And, and to your point as well about delegating attention. So, you know, just using the, using the wider team. Uh, one of the things I, I, you know, as I, uh, go, go on in my practice, I realized that this, my sort of unifocal attention, however broad, and, and one of the, the sort of cognitive heuristics actually is that you've got more attention than you think you do. And actually, it takes less than you think it does to tip you over into, into actual, you know, unifocal, lose hearing, lose line of sight of thought, lose, lose the concept of time, lose your, your peripheral vision. And it, it doesn't take much actually. And the heuristic yeah. Is that you you've got this ultimate bandwidth but um one, one of the things I'd, I'd just like to sort of broach with you before we do come into land is just this is this delegated attention about you know asking am i missing anything and, and, and cleaving other people's attention that maybe you haven't got as much experience but i actually have seen archetypal just absolute key pieces of information that will maybe change the trajectory of your of your of your, of your uh, treatment and or scene could you could you speak to how you delegate attention and or whether that works for you yeah i think that's crucially important right like one of my instructors when i was just coming up used to uh have us imagine a scenario right and they said okay imagine um you're going to walk into a room and people are going to give you a test to take a multiple choice test and how you score on that test uh dictates whether the patient in front of you lives or dies very high stakes test right so which would you prefer? Would you prefer that everybody in the room take the test separately or everybody in the room take the test together? Right? Answer is pretty obvious, right? You want everybody in the room taking the test together. That's the maximizing the chance of it to succeed. So the question becomes, how do you get everybody in the room to take the same test at the same time? Right? Crucially important. Um, functionally, a couple of things about that that I think are worth mentioning. Um, one is that uh, humans, especially within the context of a hierarchy, we don't like to disagree with people and we don't like to disagree with people above us, right? We find a hard time doing that, um, some people more than others, but everybody a little bit. So as the leader, you want to make it easy for people to disagree with you, okay? So one of the worst things you can do is be like, uh, okay, we're doing plan X, all good? And then like, wait for everybody to give you a thumbs up because the, the cost in somebody's mind of being like, wait a minute, Dan, I am not good with that is like really high, right? Compared to the same question, which is like phrased negatively, which is essentially like, all right, in a moment, but not yet, we're going to transition from, uh, you know, the airway into the transport mode and we're going to get ready to package for transport. Okay. Does anybody see a problem with that plan? Right? Who sees a problem there? And then you go around the room and you look for problems. You you allow people to present problems in alternative cases, right? Who sees a way who sees a reason this is not safe? Right? Um, a great time to practice this is, you know, your your timeouts before you're doing a procedure, right? You're stating your intent. And um David Marquet, who uh wrote the amazing book Turn the Ship Around, uh, has a ton of stuff to say about this. Right. But the, the power of sort of intent based leadership and intent based communication to say, okay, I intend to deliver anesthetics and take the airway on this patient. Um, here's my plan, here's my backup plan, here's what's up. Who sees a reason this is unsafe? Do you see a reason, Owen, that this is unsafe? And you're going around the room looking at everybody, giving them the opportunity to speak up, minimizing the costs. You might do the junior people first if you have time to do it, right? Because junior people don't like to engage with senior people or engage against senior people. You're just minimizing friction and allowing that to happen. 
Um, I think this is especially important in a cardiac arrest situation when you're making the decision to terminate efforts for care, right? When you think that it's it's sort of at the end of what you have to offer medically uh, and the person is likely going to expire or is already expired and you can't bring them back. Um, I will often set the stage for this a full round or two of CPR before I feel like I'm actually going to terminate the efforts. And I'll say things like, hey, folks, I'm really running out of ideas here. I'm going to need everybody in the room to help me out. I need all of your thoughts and all of your answers because I'm not sure what to do, right? We're going to do this round and then I'm going to ask for who has ideas, all right? And then we're going to think about stopping if nobody will to come up with anything because I'm not sure we're going to be able to help this person. Okay, so what did I do there, right? So I set the stage about what's going to happen. I expressed my own uncertainty. I allowed space for other people to come in and help me. And I asked directly for their help, not for their agreement, right? And I gave them a little time to think about it. I set the stage for what I think might happen about we might stop this arrest. We might stop delivering care. And so everybody's sort of tuned into, all right, this is my chance to think and say some ideas about stuff. And it allows us to sort of slow down the process as opposed to rapidly doing it. Same technique works really well if you're thinking about pivoting a team from a plan to another, right? Okay, we have a person and they are a really severe asthmatic and we're delivering care, but they're not turning the corner the way I want them to. And we need to get set up for a high risk airway in a minute, right? Hey team, I'm really concerned. This patient's not behaving the way I'm expecting them to. I still think our mental model dominant is asthma, but it's a lot worse than I thought. In a moment, but not yet, we're gonna get set up for a high risk airway. Okay, I need advice. I need ideas. Does anybody see any other options before we pursue an airway approach? Okay, you're getting ready to come up to that corner. You're going to turn the corner in a minute and you're letting them know, hey, there's a corner coming up. Yeah, oh, listen, Dan, I think that's f just fundamentally key. And like you said, setting setting the expectation and indeed planting the seed early just to give people that time. So you're not, you're almost not hijacking them with have I missed anything, but you're, but you're planting the seed early and, and, and letting people marinate on, on what might be actually missing, uh, in the scene or indeed, like you said, the pivot as we come into land down and we just look at some take home messages really for excellence within high-performing teams. Could you maybe just speak to two or three sort of seminal uh, take-home messages that you'd like to leave listeners with? Sure. I mean, I think the most important one is that I don't know the answer to this, right? And then, like, I need your help figuring out the answer to this. And, like, I want you to talk to me about what you think excellence looks like and how we measure it and how we achieve it and how we make teams that make excellence more likely. Right. And my guess is that if you're listening to this, you probably have some thoughts about what you've seen excellence look like. And uh, I need them. I want to hear them. Right. Like it may look like I'm talking and you're listening, but really we're on the same side of the table trying to figure this out. Um, so uh, you can reach me directly at dan at emergencymind.com. Um, and I read all of that and like love the stories and stuff that people send me. So I, I think that's the first thing is that like this is a group challenge that we're all trying to take the test together here. Right. The second piece is, I think, this idea that uh, safety is part of but not all of excellence, that excellence is more than just the lack of bad things. And I want you to remember that rosebush idea and think to yourself as you're doing your next set of operations, am I just clearing junk out or am I actively trying to grow something that will become a rosebush? Um, and I guess the third thing is this idea that excellent teams and excellent players on excellent teams do the stuff it takes to make success more likely. Do the small things, set their teams up to succeed. 
and and I'd ask you to think to yourself in your situations that you're in, what could I do here to make success more likely? Listen, that's powerful, uh, really powerful. Thanks, Dan. I really do appreciate that. And indeed, your time and perspectives. What we'll do within the show notes, Dan, is uh, is, is put uh, links to the Immensely Mind project uh, in, within the show notes so people can check that out. And I do encourage people to 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 check out uh, the set of resources that Dan puts forward and indeed the digital footprint that Dan has. There's some fantastic resources there. Um, thank you once again for the last hour, Dan. It's been uh, It's been excellent. Oh, and thank you so much. Thanks for having me and thanks for, for helping me solve some of these problems. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please feel free to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical and performance medicine. Thanks again.